This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help and inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. For today's show with a remarkable public servant whose work on the largest scale imaginable to advance equity and ensure equality has changed the world for all of us. One of Time's most 100 influential people, Valerie Jarrett oversaw the offices of public engagement and intergovernmental affairs for President Obama and chaired the White House Council on Women and Girls, where she worked tirelessly and successfully to advance civil rights, reduce gun violence, reform our criminal justice system, and improve the lives of working families. She's currently a senior advisor to the Obama Foundation and Attention, a new social media platform for purpose-driven storytelling. She sits on the boards of Ariel Capital Management Holdings, 2U and Lyft, and something I'm particularly excited to talk to her about today is she co-chairs the United State of Women and serves as board chair for When We All Vote. She's also the author of a really inspiring and instructive memoir called Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward, where she takes us from her childhood in Iran to her early career in law and Chicago city government, and then her daily efforts in the White House to amplify the voices of others. So with all that, Valerie, I'm honored to have you on Women at Work. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Laura. I'm delighted to be here, particularly given your focus. <laughs> so one of the things that really struck me is your voice is one of the most influential voices in our world today. I'm grateful that it's out there. And the title of your book, and in fact, the whole story, suggests there was a time when you didn't know how to use that voice. Oh, my goodness. That would be a massive understatement. I didn't trust the most important voice, and that's the one inside of us. I didn't appreciate the power of my own voice. I didn't really have a clear direction of what what it meant to lead a purposeful life. And it was really in the course of finding out 10 years into a plan that wasn't working according to plan, where I thought I'd go right to law school, practice law, fall in love, get married, have a baby before 30, and live happily ever after. And at about 31, I realized I was in an unhappy marriage. I was not enjoying my career. I did have a daughter who was the most important thing I've ever done in life, but I didn't think I was doing anything that would ever actually make her proud of me. And I had to do a gut check and a course correction and a swerve and whatever you want to call it. (laughs) But I changed paths and it was really uncomfortable and hard to do. There's so much in there that I want to explore. I want to start, though, early on, because when we think about I've got my own daughter and the pipeline of girls and with that feeling inside that you have something to say, even as a child, Sometimes because there's something you want to express or you feel obligated to express. When did you realize that that you were kind of muted in a way, that you were afraid to let it out? I think there were a lot of um, events in my childhood where I didn't feel empowered to speak up. I didn't feel empowered when I was bullied when I returned to the United States after having been born in Iran and lived there for five years and then London and I had a British accent and I was a couple of years ahead of myself in school and I didn't um, understand the culture in the United States there and for my parents they were going back home and so they were happy and all I would do is get beat up and I didn't even tell my parents I would get beat up after school I just kind of sucked it up and never complained and then sadly Laura tried to just be like everybody else and I think that that's something that children often do they just want to they don't want to stand out they don't want to be different and so I think it turned me into a very shy person which lasted well into adulthood it's amazing to realize all of the things that you had to offer and at the same time you were unusual you were coming you were an outsider coming to a place that wasn't home yet for you also that you even when bullied didn't want to speak up did not want to speak up just wanted it to stop Yeah, I guess so. And I kind of just figured like, you know, I just, this is something I just have to withstand. And what do I have to do? And this is like at age five and six. So it's not like I have an adult mature mind. But I just, I know I remember feeling very embarrassed when my younger cousin would come to my rescue. And I was thinking, oh, gosh, why do I need her to do that? But I just thought it was something I had to endure. It never occurred to me to go home. I thought, I think I probably thought if I complained about it, then there would be, there would be even harder retaliation. And so I just thought, let me just get through this. 
And it did make me go into a bit of a shell and not talk about what really was an extraordinary childhood, an amazing gift that my parents had given me to have this unusual um, upbringing where I would spend our summer vacations traveling throughout Africa from Ghana to Nigeria to Uganda, Ethiopia, and back to Iran. And everybody else was going to summer camp, and I just wanted to go to summer camp. But now I think back on what a rich experience I had, and I'm so grateful to Barbara and Jimmy Bowen. You had seen the whole world before you ever were being bullied in the playground. Exactly. It's really quite amazing. And gave and that gave me a perspective I think was really important. A few things it taught me. Number one, a confidence walking into a room and finding something in common. So I may have been shy, but I always expected that if I struck up a conversation, there would be a common ground. Because I grew up in a hospital compound with families and children of physicians from all over the world. And so I was used to having language barriers and coming from different parts of the world and and still finding something in common. And then the other thing I think it taught me is to appreciate much of what we have in the United States that sometimes those who haven't traveled take for granted. So everything from clean water and clean food, not having to boil or peel everything, to our civil liberties and freedoms of speech and religion and association. And even though... This is a rather toxic time right now. We still do have those basic rights that many parts of the world don't enjoy. And the other thing I really learned at a young age is that the United States is a great country. It's not the only country on Earth, and that we can learn a great deal outside of our shores. And so I think those early lessons stayed with me throughout life, even at the times where I was hesitant to speak up. It did ground me in a way and give me context for where we fit in. I mean, a question about how really you became so grounded in a way that I think had a massive ripple effect. You talked about a self-sufficiency, that even when you were being bullied, you wanted to deal with it yourself, and that a mantra throughout the book was about um, work twice as hard, be twice as good, and be three times as lucky. Yes. That came from my parents, who grew up what my mom in Chicago, my dad in D.C., under Jim Crow, and, and they were taught that if you're black in America, you better be overprepared, and, uh, but that that isn't enough because there are a lot of people who are overprepared and work twice as hard, and things don't fall their way. But they always said, don't let your lack of effort be the reason why you fail. It, and the, so that motivated me. The first time I heard that was from um, Sandra Day O'Connor, mm-hmm. who talked about it also as an experience that a lot of women have faced Absolutely. trying to make their way in business. And you had the experience of not just being black and not just being a woman, but also um, your international experience. The, the, you had so many different dimensions to you than the world you were dropped into. How did you learn to navigate all those aspects of your identity in this new world? You know what? I think what we all do is you... You learn to be a bit of a chameleon. So wherever you are, you're figuring out, well, what do I have to do to get along in this cohort? And where that worked, I think, to my disadvantage was when I first started practicing law. And I noticed that um, women never talked about being moms or what they did outside of work. They just worked. And they wanted to create the impression that work was their first and only priority. Whereas if a guy took off early to go to soccer practice, everybody thought, oh, how oh, they went wonderful. Hooray, hooray. But I was afraid that if I uh, did any of that, that I wouldn't be taken as seriously. And I tell the story in my book of being nine months pregnant and still trying to pretend nothing was happening below my neck. And <laughs> and the, something was obviously happening, but I... I I I succumbed to this sense of I had to be like the guys. And I think the same thing would apply any time. I mean, if if I was in a group where I was the only black person in the room, well, then I would try to say, okay, well, what do I have to do to fit in here? And I think part of the problem for women and people of color is is that the burden is on us to fit in. Mm -hmm. We aren't there to make other groups conform to us when you're in the minority. And so part of what I advocate in the workplace is when we appreciate that diversity is a strength mm-hmm. and that we make better decisions when voices are not only represented at the table but empowered to speak up, that that's really where we have a competitive advantage. And so for a long time, I came at women's equality from the perspective of it's the right thing to do. And when I began to shift the way I described it to it's a competitive advantage, uh, that's when I think it started getting some traction. And the other way to look at it is that 
when businesses are doing what's the right thing to do, they might do it in good times when the economy is great. But the second the belt gets tightened, what do you cut off? You cut off all the things that you consider to be non-essential. And I think that diversity is an essential part of good business. And in a globally competitive marketplace, um, employers who get that are going to thrive. And having been in a law firm where... I don't think diversity was appreciated mm-hmm. as a strength. And then having worked in both the private and public sector where it was, I have a good basis of comparison just in my own life story, let alone the research and the other stories that I've heard throughout my life. As you were talking about the way that you had to be chameleon-like mm-hmm. and adapt to each environment, and I think about what that does to anyone emotionally, that that had, had to have taken – it had to be at least exhausting. How did you – still remain as productive, as focused, as positive, while every day you're constraining yourself a little bit? You know, I think, again, it would probably go back to my parents, where they just, in a very matter-of-fact way, that's just the way it is. And so, yeah, you have to work twice as hard. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with hard work. Just go do it. And so they gave me a reservoir of resilience, also knowing that if I did stumble and fall, they'd catch me, and there's nothing like having that. It was a real... Uh, advantage to know that I had a safety net underneath me so I could take risks and I could do things that didn't conform. And I think my my father, when I was very young, was explaining how important it was that he took that um, turn to go to Iran and how from Iran he got a job at the University College of London and from there he was recruited to the University of Chicago, a job that was not available to him six years earlier. And he said sometimes uh, the shortest distance to where you want to go means you have to be prepared to take the scenic route. And so we always said, don't don't be afraid of the scenic route. Oh. And so that has always echoed in me. So when I left a law firm, when everyone was telling me I had the dream job, and I wanted to go work in local government with less pay and a tiny office facing the alley compared to a fancy office in a tall building in Chicago, that was my version of the scenic route. But the scenic route means that you have to trust that voice inside of you. And I think for the first 30 years of my life, I just really didn't. I just wanted to be like everybody else. And it wasn't until I said, who are you really, that I began to thrive. And we know you're like no one else. You're listening to Women at Work, in case you just tuned in, here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. And my guest today is the amazing Valerie Jarrett. She was formerly a senior advisor to President Barack Obama and is the author of Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. And she's here in the studio today. We're so excited because she's on the Penn campus as a guest of the Fells Institute of Government's Public Policy and Practice Series. So, Valerie, in all of this excitement of having you here, there's so much I want to learn from you and share with our listeners. Thank you. And tapping into um, that experience that you were having, you, you lived this arc of how business changed and offices changed and how we thought about who's in the room, why they're in the room, how we help them be included in the room so that they can really be effective mm-hmm. there. And as you were describing those early days where you're trying to pretend from the waist down you're not pregnant, to me that's screaming not really inclusive if you can't even acknowledge you're pregnant, never mind all the other de- ways that diversity presents itself. Right. How did you start to make inclusive spaces around you? Did you did you have to wait until you were in charge or were there things that you did as a member of the room to help that happen? Well, it's an interesting question. I think in the law firm, one thing I did do is to reach out to other women and try to, you know, there was safety in numbers, but there weren't very many of us. But I think really where I began to appreciate the strength of diversity was when I started working as a lawyer in city government. And I worked first for Harold Washington, first black mayor of Chicago, who ran on a progressive agenda and kind of a rainbow coalition. And talked very specifically about how that he was the mayor of the whole city of Chicago. And although people thought he was just the black mayor, he made a concerted effort to reach out. And that went all the way through with Mayor Daley, who many people questioned him when he was first elected mayor. And given his legacy and his father's history, would he be the mayor for Chicago? And he did the exact same thing. He reached out to communities of color that He didn't expect to embrace him, but he knew he had to earn their trust. And so seeing those two mayors in particular, and then I had a woman mentor. And I have to tell you, there's nothing like having a strong woman. And I was fortunate to have a mother who was a strong woman, but in the workplace to have a woman 
who looked after me and taught me how to advocate for other people and just as importantly, how to advocate for myself and wouldn't take no for an answer. I mean, I remember when she pushed me to go ask for a promotion and she just was relentless. Like, you will go do this. And I, and I didn't want to. I thought when my boss thought I was deserving, he would just give me the promotion. And she's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. He's not thinking about it. But you. we all think of it that we, way until we learn otherwise. And men don't. Men, first day of work, they think I deserve the next job up and are, not, and are, and are prepared to take rejection. And I think oftentimes we are so busy and this is obviously a stereotype but the nurturers who want to be liked mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that Lucille taught me in city government is respect is what you really want and if you treat people well and you have integrity and character they will respect you and in time they will like you but the most important thing is that, that they do respect you and that that means you have to start by respecting yourself and as I moved through these various positions, uh, I suppose when I went to the private sector and I was with the Habitat company, and then I was in a position to help uh, create culture. And culture is very deliberate. And mm-hmm. I was intentional as to who gets invited to the meetings. And even in the city hall days, I was very expansive in including people, anyone who worked on a project, yeah, you're welcome to the meeting, so that they felt a sense of buy-in. And I think oftentimes we don't do that in the workplace. We limit the people who are... Because I think it doesn't it make people feel powerful to exclude others sometimes, even though it's kind of crazy. If you're really interested in decision-making and making the most important decisions well-informed, I think one of the key characteristics of leadership is learning to listen. And that's listening to people who might be very junior to you, but who have great ideas and who are thinking from a different life perspective. And so, again, when I started in city government, I always was very conscious, following the lead of the mayor, to build a big progressive tent where voices were heard. And when you see somebody doesn't have the confidence to speak up because I'm so shy, I've always been so shy, I see it in other people. And then the question is, what are you going to do to make that person comfortable and invite them in? And so those kind of address the culture issue. But, Laura, I think very importantly also is, What are the fundamental impediments that keep women from thriving in the workplace? One is a culture, a welcoming culture, but then it's equal pay. It's paid leave. We're still the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a federal paid leave policy. It's affordable childcare. It's workplace flexibility. I remember, and you will resonate with you, when you're a young working mom, particularly a single mom, if you don't have the flexibility to go when you need to go, then you are going to feel as though you're doing a terrible job in the most important job, and that's raising your children. So, and you feel split in two directions. So yeah. for me, it was um, I like asking for a raise. It was very frightening the first time I needed to assert that I had to leave mm-hmm. and to figure out how to make sure that I could do that without upsetting the apple cart. It wasn't about getting my work done on a laptop at right. that point. I could go home and get the work done or print out briefs and take them home. But it was the politics of navigating how to extract myself so I could be in the other places I need to be. How did you learn to do that? Well, my mentor helped me, and she helped me in a lot of ways. I finally worked up the nerve to tell her, look, I've got to get home by bedtime. I'll come back to work, but I've got to at least put Laura to bed. As Laura became verbal, and she would write me notes to, like, Mommy, please come home. And Lucille would come by my home on her way home so that I could put Laura to bed and then we'd work from my home. And I did make her dinner, so she got something out of it. Okay, fair's fair. But it, it was so unusual to have... She was my client, to have a client that would bend over backwards like that. But because she did it, I was so incredibly loyal to her. And then I realized how important it was for me to pay it forward. And so people on my team, which means you have to know the people Mm -hmm. on your team. You have to get to know what's going on in their life. Do they have a sick parent? Are they anticipating a family? Are they worried about this or that? Is there a spouse um, uh, causing friction? And if you pay attention to who's on your team... It will enable you to get the best out of them. And this culture that's a healthy culture also has to do with a culture free from sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And both in city government and at my private firm, that was something that I cared very deeply about. This is obviously decades before the Me Too movement, but to set a tone at the top that says there's zero tolerance. And I will say in my law firm, I did see not just my firm, but in other firms, harassment. And we all thought we had to just ignore it. We thought mm-hmm. you just had to swallow it, right? Yeah, we just found ways to cope with it, get past it, 
protect ourselves from it. How by, many dirty jokes did you listen to? Oh and I endless. can remember just thinking, I can't complain because then they'll think, well, I'm not one of the guys. Back to the chameleon, right? So mm-hmm. I just have to sit here and suck it up. And I did promise myself way back then, if I'm ever in a position to create a culture, I want to create one where no matter who you are, you do not feel excluded. You do, not. And it is good for business. It's good for productivity. I tell the story in my book, Laura, about being in a meeting with Mayor Daly early, early on when he was very intimidating, scared the <laughs> daylights out of me, and looking at my watch and looking at my colleague, Susan Schur, who was his top lawyer, and he noticed and he said, so what's going on that's more important than this meeting? And in a moment of faith that I'm not sure I could have done without Susan in the room, which is another point, there is safety in numbers, I said, sir, the Halloween parade starts in 20 minutes and we're 25 minutes away. And I don't know what I thought he would do, but what did he do? He said, well, then why are you here? Go. And to this day, I would do anything for that man. And that's what I think employers need to understand Mm -hmm. is that if you recognize and value your workforce's whole life and support it, what do you get back? Hard work and loyalty. Because we're taking care of each other. We're taking care, and, we, and we're building relationships, which is another thing that is so important in leadership. And, and I often tell the story the first time I met Michelle Robinson, now Michelle Obama, and she interviewed for a job with me. And uh, she saw her resume sitting on my desk and never mentioned you know, Princeton undergrad, Harvard Law School. She told me her story, which is the quintessential American story that everybody now knows. But for me, it was brand new. And she not only did she tell me she grew up in this working class family on the south side of Chicago. Parents hadn't gone to college, but valued education for she and her brother, Craig. But she also told me about the loss of her father and her best friend within Mm -hmm. the last year. And that that's what was motivating her to consider public service. She thought she wasn't leading a purposeful enough life that was fulfilling um, what she could do, her potential. Well, when she told me that, I fell in love with her. And all I could think about is how often we don't tell our stories and we don't let people in and make ourselves vulnerable. And then they don't invest in us and we wonder why. And so it is about relationships, both in your personal and your professional life. And that leadership, to me, uh, requires listening and investment and caring about the people who who um, with whom you work that work moment play <laughs> where Michelle reached out to you um, was I say Michelle as if I'm on a first name basis <laughs> you're it's hard not to I, <laughs> I do love her though um, it's such a potent moment on so many levels it, it has now affected all of our lives because of what it meant for the three of you to ultimately meet each other. Um, One of the things that I found interesting was why was she reaching out to you? I think the process that she was going through at the time was really useful for other people that went on a, I think like you did too, you know, did followed, dotted all the I's, crossed the T's, went to a great school, went to law school and find yourself in work that doesn't speak to you. And had she sent out a bunch of resumes to try and have conversations with people? Uh, she had, and actually her resume came to me uh, via a partner at her law firm who sent it to Susan Scher, the corporation counsel, and across the top it said, brilliant young lawyer, has no interest in practicing law. And it reminded me, she reminded me when I talked to her of myself. She was like, I'm doing this soul searching and I've had these horrible losses in my life and is my life really going to be meaningful as it should be? And I thought that's exactly how I felt when I left the law firm. And... It was funny because, of course, she bowled me over so much I gave her a job offer on the spot. I didn't have any authority to give her a job <laughs> offer, but I gave it to her. It and was a risk w- worth taking. It was well worth taking. It looks really smart in retrospect. But she demurred and said, let me think about it. And then she talked it over with her fiancé. And when I called her to follow up, she said, well, I have a problem. My fiancé doesn't think it's such a great idea. And I said, well, who's your fiancé? And what do we care what he thinks? And she said, well, his name is Barack Obama. And He's concerned of me going from a law firm right into the fire. You at least went to the frying pan being a lawyer, but I'd be going (laughs) to the mayor's office. And would you be willing to have dinner with us? And since then, there have been so many people who say to me, well, why did she need to have her husband or then fiance's permission? And I say in response, having now known them nearly 30 years, there isn't a single decision he made in his life without her sitting at the table too. And so it was more an indication of the partnership 
that they were forming and that they weren't afraid to say, no, no, we make decisions together and we both want to meet you. That's what struck me as so um, extraordinary about it, that A, it took a, it, there is a sense of self-encourage that comes from making a request like that when yes. you're looking for a job yeah. um, that suggests that she had options, but also that she knew what she needed and that you listened. You made room for that. You didn't um, respond to how unorthodox it was negatively. Instead, it sounds like it kept you curious. It drew me in just as when she took Sasha to a job interview at the University of Chicago Medical Center with the CEO because the babysitter didn't show up. <laughs> I now, I will say she didn't really want that job. She didn't care that much. And she, But she said also, look, this is my life. I might as well be honest about it at the front end, which shows you the progress between when I came out of school and, and the confidence that this young woman had. Absolutely. I would never have taken Laura to a job interview with me for fear of how it would be perceived. She had the confidence to say, I need to be open about who I am. I have have children. I can't pretend I don't. And if that's not going to be okay, then I don't belong here. And I remember thinking at the time, what an extraordinarily wise soul you are. Indeed. And also what a distance to travel from a point where you felt like you couldn't be pregnant from the waist down. You don't talk about family. Ever. Ever at work. And for her, it's front and center. It's not just as a mom, but the other message that she was sending was it was a redefinition of marriage, especially in that era. Yes, absolutely. I'm not asking for permission. It's that this is a true partnership. Exactly. And we think these these things through together. And just as when he ran for Senate or ran for president, she was right there at the table with his political advisors and other good friends and that and that you make better decisions when the people that you love most in the world are a part of the decision making process particularly when their lives are going to be impacted by it yeah in such a profound way we were talking also about that moment where you met Michelle Obama before she was Michelle Obama um, and how that relationship started how did it go from you're interviewing Michelle for a job and meeting with her husband because they're making decisions as partners to this kind of relationship that so changed all three of your lives. There was a level of trust that began at that first dinner the three of us had together, where then Barack Obama was able to ask me questions about my childhood in Iran that I never talked about, because as I mentioned to you, I tried to pretend none of that existed. And he talked about his life in Indonesia and how we had common perspectives because of that. And uh, Michelle Robinson and I talked a lot about our parents and how the similar values that they had and how they had raised us. And I think what we realized at that first dinner was that we did have a lot in common. Not everything in common, but a lot in common. And when you have a relationship built on trust, then it just grows organically over time. And we have been a part of the vicissitudes of our lives ever since. And the good, the bad, the challenging, the losses... And over the test of time, as in any relationship, you learn uh, you learn about people and you grow together. And there are sometimes in relationships where people grow apart. But in our case, we lived in the same neighborhood. We, uh, we worked together. We played together. Our, my daughter is considerably older than their kids, but the kids always came over to our houses. And uh, we had a good circle of friends that were very nurturing and supportive. And so that was the glue. It sounds like a partnership, which it clearly was. But there was also a way that you you served as a mentor at important stages in each of their lives. Um, how do you how did you know how to guide them? Was it something th- and that they would be open to it? Was it a byproduct of the friendship? Was it about how clearly gifted and passionate they are? What was it that had, because it's not every friendship where you can also move into mentorship. Well, that's true. And so perhaps it started because Michelle came and joined my team. And so in a sense, I was by definition a mentor. I was older. I was her boss. um, And it began that way. And with, with him, I was involved in his earliest campaign when he ran for the state Senate. And again, I'm a bit older. And so um, I think they, they looked up to me in the position that I was in as they were trying to figure out how they would serve because I had been in public service for a while then and had a track record. Uh, and then it it really was just how relationships grow over time and trying to make sure that 
we bounced ideas off of each other. And to be a true friend, you have to be a good listener. And you also have to be able to appreciate the core values of your friends and, and what would motivate them. And I always knew both of them would make extraordinary public servants. And so there was one time where I tried to talk him out of running for the U.S. Senate. That was a mistake. <laughs> I was wrong on that one. Uh, and he was right. And I was afraid. And I learned from him. That's really where he began mentoring me. Because I remember saying, if you lose this Senate race, then your career in politics is going to be over. And then what? And he said, well, if that's the worst thing that happens to me, I'm prepared to take that chance. Why aren't you? And I thought, that's a very good point. So the sense of willingness to take risks, he was always a risk taker. And in fact, I think he's the one that helped encourage her to take the chance of moving away from the law firm. He didn't abide by, you know, the corner office and all of those. No, tra- that clearly. was never what was seductive to him. And so I think there was a kind of commonality that the three of us shared in this love and passion for public service in the sense that we were we, we were so fortunate to be so well-educated and have had these great experiences in our lives and that why wouldn't we want to take that and and be a force for good and so I think we helped reinforce that amongst each other as we made these big life decisions along the way so one of the things that happened was you hired Michelle and you were mentoring her this whole relationship unfolded and then if we fast forward to life in the White House um you know, you're now working for him. I know. It was a bit of a role reversal. <laughs> yes. I told him when he first offered me the job, I said, you know, I'm kind of used to being used to being the boss of you. And he <laughs> said, well, I'm going to be the president of the United States. Does that change things? And I said, yeah, I guess it does. <laughs> also, I'm curious about it. I have a staff, all of whom are younger than I am. But I've also, I, my faculty co-directors who I report to are all younger than mm-hmm. I am. And so um, I'm accustomed to my team as younger. But it's a new thing to have the people that I am proudly and delightfully serving also being younger. Um, How did that feel in the White House? And is there advice that you would give to people about because that's about moving past those kinds of typical hierarchies that we assume are norms, but sometimes we need to think outside of? Well, for us, it began in the campaign where the way President Obama organized his presidential campaign is that he recruited all these young superstars fresh out of school and made them field organizers. And when someone such as myself would go out to the campaign as a surrogate, I worked for the field organizer. So here I am 50-something, and they're 20-something. And the reason why I worked for them is, is that they knew the community. They'd been in there. They'd been embedded. They understood the leadership. They understood the issues that the community cared about. And so our orientation early, early on was... They have something really important to offer. And I think that when you are um, in a position of being a manager, it's really important to understand that everybody has something to offer and that age, in some cases, uh, works to your disadvantage. These young folks understood technology faster than we did. They had more energy. They didn't sleep. They just drank, you know, whatever, Red Bull and ate pizza and lived <laughs> right. in horrible conditions, none of which I was going to do on a regular basis. They and, and they had a pulse of the folks on the ground that was really, really valuable. And uh, in the White House, I was one of the older people. And one of my colleagues, Tina Chin, and I are the same age. We both said, oh, my gosh, everybody here is younger than we are. In the book, I talk about going through menopause in the White House, which was just an example of how different we were while everybody else was having babies. But I think tone starts at the top. And because President Obama made it clear that he valued everybody and that we all had something to offer, all of those kind of superficial age and experience kind of faded away. Not that we didn't have experts with subject matter um, uh, brilliance, Mm -hmm. but... The experts also listened to the people who were in my team who were out talking to the American people who were going to be affected by our decisions or talking to the mayors and governors who had to implement these decisions. And so recognizing that everybody had input that was valuable in the decision-making process 
empowered people to use their voices. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Valerie Jarrett about her book, Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. So one of the things that you write about that feels connected to this was speaking of, you know, everybody has something to contribute, was um, something that happened in the White House that was very purposeful about helping the women staffers' voices be heard. Can you share the story with us, how it, how you discovered that there was an issue and how it got addressed? Yeah, so I would remind your listeners that when President Obama took office, we were on the verge of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. We were losing 750, 800,000 jobs a month. The unemployment rate was skyrocketing up. Millions of people were losing their homes. We had two wars and a lot on our plate. So, And we were all brand new at this job. None of us had worked together as a team in government before. Several of us came from the campaign with President Obama, but... It wasn't yet a team. And I noticed after a few months that in meetings, particularly where President Obama was not present, that the voices of the women were beginning to shrink. And I talked to them about what was going on, and it was all the things that women experience in the workplace. Well, I don't think my, my opinion is being valued. I'll, I'll say something and nobody pays attention. And then a couple of minutes later, a guy says the same thing. And... Um, And it was a sense of being undervalued. And so I mentioned it to him. And his reaction was, well, that's ridiculous. They're (laughs) there for a reason. I want want and welcome and need their input. And so he said, I'm going to invite them all over for dinner. And we're going to talk it through and just get this straight. Because the culture I want to create is one where they recognize the value of their voice. And so he did just that. And I remember going to each of the women before dinner and I said, well, you better speak up because I've told him it's a problem when he isn't in the room. So if you don't go in there and say it's a problem, then I'm going to look ridiculous. So be honest with him. He really wants to to figure out how to help here. And what I remember most is not so much what they say, because they said, because it was kind of what you would expect. But what he said is, this is the White House. I am making the most important decisions of anybody on earth. I will make a better decision with the benefit of what you have to say. And so don't speak up for you. Speak up for me. And speak up not because it's your pride of authorship, but because you have an idea that hasn't been presented yet and that should be in the mix so that I will make a fully informed decision that was so empowering. You oh tell a group goodness. of women you're not doing your job if you don't speak up, and it's not about you, it's about the boss. <laughs> right, because then we're missing your ideas. We're missing the benefit of your ideas. And he said, look, I might disagree with you. I welcome a disagreement because you will push me to make a better, more informed decision if I consider a different perspective. And it changed and it didn't I won't say it changed instantly but he did go and talk to some of the guys and he said look I value these voices and I want the kind of culture where they will thrive and someone asked him at the end of his first term in office what was the difference in his the people who worked there in the beginning compared to the end and he said in the beginning I had the best players on the field and at the end of the first term I had the best team and teams have to be reinforced every single day just because I mean I knew He was raised by a single mom. He's got an extraordinarily competent wife. He has two daughters. I knew the kind of culture he wanted. But unless it's reinforced throughout the organization, it doesn't just happen by osmosis. And I think it was a really important lesson. And he would do, um, he he had these techniques in meetings where you'd have the principals, that they call them, all the senior people sitting around the table. And in the back row would be the staff. And he would look around the principal to the person who he knew actually had prepared the document he said, well, what do you think? And you know, the principal's <laughs> like, wait a minute, I'm here. And he's like, no, no, no. You know, Laura, what do you think? I know that this is your area of expertise. Well, imagine how that made Laura feel. And if Laura said, well, Mr. President, I don't actually agree with you, then you got the full Obama. He'd lean in and he goes, tell me why you don't agree with me. And it was just the body language and the tone and everything was to empower people and show how diversity of ideas enhance the decision-making process. And so it was a wonderful experience for us all, I think, to live through. And hopefully everyone who's now left that White House takes that experience to heart wherever they are. So there was another thing that grew out of the same White House, which was also about making sure other women's voices were heard, and that was the White House Council on Women and Girls. My baby. Talk (laughs) to me a little bit about how that developed 
and yeah. and what you accomplished because it's pretty amazing. So early on, uh, Tina Chen, who came in to head public engagement and had been a superstar partner at a law firm at Skadden Arps, so she joined my team overseeing our outreach efforts. And Tina and I met 30 years ago working on women's rights. And we started to think, well, what should we do to make sure that our outreach includes the voices of women and uh, helps enhance this fight for gender equity? And so we looked at all the different models that prior White Houses had had, and we realized there had never been a White House that had a council made up of representatives of every um, agency and department in the federal government. So we went to President Obama and pitched him on a White House Council on Women and Girls. I chaired the board for all eight years. Tina was the executive director for the entire time. And our mission was simply to make sure that in all of our policies, programs, legislation that we supported, that we were looking at it through a gender lens. And to realize that you don't change um, laws and culture in a vacuum, that you have to engage. And so our platform also included engagement with a whole range of stakeholders. And we focused on everything from women's health care to ending sexual assault on college campuses to uh, the whole basket of issues that we discussed earlier, Laura called working family issues from equal pay to paid leave to uh, an environment free from uh, violence and harassment uh, to workplace flexibility. Uh, we focused on uh, on companies that produce toys with implicit biases, toys and entertainment, and we, met, we brought in the entertainment industry. Everything we did included bringing in the stakeholders, the people who could actually affect change on the ground so that it wasn't just coming from the top down. So it sounds like p part of the magic of it, or the brilliance, I don't want to attribute this to fate, this was really purposeful, was that you looked at how you could hear and um, learn from all the different data sources that were out there, the Absolutely. voices, the information, the reports, the research, the scholarship, so that you could apply it to policymaking, and at the same time, take what you were learning and figure out where um, it could be infused into practices that were going on in everyday life, particularly where it could have big impact, like in toy manufacturing. Like to, in toy manufacturing. Or so, for example, we asked employers to take an equal pay pledge. We weren't able to get Congress to pass meaningful legislation to close the gender gap, pay gap. So we said, well, employers who now want to pride themselves on being a good place to work, we said, well, take a pledge that you'll pay equally, which means you have to actually look at the numbers and do the work. Mm -hmm. And I know countless ex examples of great employers who thought they were paying equally, but actually when they looked at the numbers, they found a gap. And then we asked them, if you find a gap, close the gap and look at what are the structural impediments that led, uh, structural conditions that led to the gap in the first place and deal with those. And some of it, so for example, I'm on the board of Lyft. They do, they require everybody who hires is in a hiring position to go through implicit bias training first. So, okay, that's one way of trying to say, what do we have to do to make sure that we are not perpetuating these biases that we all have mm -hmm. by just being aware of them? So we did a lot of work, both, as you said, with the researchers who were looking at the evidence that would support our positions to the people who had to implement them and recognizing that government doesn't have a magic wand to change the culture. I use, I often say that you might have a paid leave policy on your books as a matter of you know, company corporate practice, but if nobody takes advantage of it, then you don't actually have a paid leave policy, <laughs> exactly. do you? And so what are the tools that we can do to help change the paradigm where employers begin to recognize that these practices are good for business? And that was really the area where I was um, extremely involved because of my own life experiences where I had support in the workplace and where I didn't. So speaking of government can only do so much, it has to make its way into the culture. We also know that there is no longer a White House Council on Women and Girls. No, there's not. But there is the United State of Women. There is. Tell us about it and what you're trying to do there and also how we can get involved. Oh, thank you for asking that question. So in 2016, the summer of 2016, Tina Chin and I decided 
let's have a summit uh, and call it the United State of Women and let's celebrate our successes over the last eight years in our fight towards gender equity. And we you know, held up employers who had expanded their paid leave and made it equal for men and for women and who were prepared to say how it was good for business. And we talked about the Affordable Care Act and how it benefits women because of the preventive health care that we now have without an additional copay. And you know, everything that we had done, we showcased. But more importantly, uh, we said, what's the work that lies ahead? And who's in the field now with evidence-based best practices that can be taken to scale? And 6,000 people showed up. And so after we gave the new administration what we considered to be a reasonable amount of time to decide whether or not they were going to continue this work through the White House Council, and they didn't, we said, well, let's create a not-for-profit and continue the work because the really important work is happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. Not that much is happening in Congress, but there are cities and states and employers who are putting these important practices in place right now. And so the council is designed, or the United States of Women is designed to be an umbrella organization that lifts up these best, best practices, connects people who are interested in the same topics so that they can brainstorm together and share those best practices in the hopes of taking them to scale. So we had our first summit post-White House years in Los Angeles in 2018. More people showed up than showed up at the White House summit. There was a huge appetite for this work. We had an extraordinarily diverse stage made up of people on the ground. Uh, Tina and I had almost no role at this session. We wanted to empower the voices of people who are out there doing this important work every day. And there were all kinds of relationships that grew out of it. We had sessions that led up to the actual summit called galvanizing sessions. And um, one of the women who ran for office in Illinois met her campaign manager at that summit. Oh, that's and amazing. Laura was, and now, you know, it's just to think that now somebody is actually in office and made a connection there. So... Um, we're going to do another one in 2020, and we would love to have your engagement and participation. It would be thrilling. And it, there's also an open call for everyone to get involved That's and the advance point. these causes. And there's room for men. We can't make the kind of systemic, sustainable change that we need without men at the table, mm -hmm. because let's recognize they're still in extraordinarily powerful positions. And so getting them to buy in and appreciate that they have a role to play is a piece of it as well. But we do at the summit try to lift up the voices of the women uh, and a few good men. There's also another place where we get to have our voices heard, and that's in voting. Yes. And that's another one of your big projects. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Michelle Obama and I did a lot of soul searching after the last election. And I mean, I have to tell you, the outcome took me by surprise, but more stunning, I think, to both of us. Um, well, maybe not more stunning, but stunning <laughs> to us both was that 43% of eligible voters did not vote. I know. It's my And so we have a culture challenge in our country, particularly young people who have the most to lose over the long term, um, are not engaged the way they should be. And some of you know, the whole host of reasons for why people don't vote, and I've heard all the excuses, but I know that our democracy would be stronger if we had a culture where everybody voted. And so we decided to create a nonpartisan organization because it isn't just about Democrats voting. It's about every citizen recognizing their responsibility. And it's interesting at a time where we're trying to get more people to vote to see states that are passing these voter suppression laws. And it's like, in a democracy, you should want more people to participate yes. and get engaged. And we want to make voting fun. So we want like families to go vote together and, and clubs to vote together and have entertainment while you're standing in line. I went down to Florida in 2012 and there were uh, people with their picnic baskets and fried chicken and concerts. Music was blaring. And let's make voting a fun cultural experience. Something again. to celebrate. And it should be. And, you know, frankly, if you don't like the outcome of the election and you didn't participate in the process, then you don't really have a lot complain. to say. It's hard for you to complain. And, and I think what we've one of the one of the um, outcomes of the last election is this resurgence of activism, beginning the day after the inauguration with the Women's March and the young Parkland students who launched March for Our Lives and the Me Too movement and Time's Up and, 
and the record number of women who won seats in the congressional mm-hmm. midterm elections, many of whom never run for office before and hadn't thought about getting involved in politically. So I think I'm very energized by the level of activism, and we just want to translate that into actual voting, not just in the presidential race, because I think what many miss is it matters who's on your school board. It matters who is in your city council, who's your state legislator. It all matters. They all are making decisions about how your money is spent and the policies that affect your life and the life of the people you love. And I think women particularly can be very helpful in changing this cultural paradigm. So through um, When We All Vote, um, I was looking at it this morning and I sent the link to my daughter who Good. immediately signed up. Not just, She's not ready to register to vote. She's a little long, young, but to volunteer. She so can help register other people to vote. So there's I, opportunities oh for people gosh. to get involved, even teenagers who aren't ready to be voters themselves. Anyone. I met an 11-year-old on a book tour event earlier in Seattle and he knew, he had like a synopsis of every candidate who was running and he was out there sending out his white papers and, you know, so yes, there's room for everyone to participate. You don't have to be voting age to get other people to vote. We have just a few minutes left. I have to ask, of all the things that you've done, Valerie, so far, recognizing, I hope, it's not over yet. A work in progress. There's still lots to do. What are you most proud of? Oh, well, (laughs) raising my daughter. There's just nothing more satisfying, as you know, than having a daughter and and seeing, not just loving her, but thinking she's a good person who's just out there finding her own way in the world and taking chances and swerving and being finding a partner who she loves and having a baby. I mean, that's, that's really what life is all about. But I think when I look back over my professional career, um, the work I have done around empowering women has been really meaningful to me together with the civil rights work. And I think I went into public service to kind of come full circle Laura, with this sense that to those who much is given, you know, much should be expected. Mm-hmm. And that um, I was really lucky. I had great parents. I had great education. I had um, wonderful opportunities. And I often felt like I was hanging on by my fingertips. And if I felt that way, what about those working families who have no safety net, who have no margin for error, who are one paycheck away from a disaster, one illness away from a disaster? And so, Dedicating my life to just trying to level that playing field for people who just need a fair shot, that's a purposeful life. It is indeed. And it's also, um, just like having a baby, an enormous act of hope. Yes. There's an optimism in what you do that I also think is really important. Well, thank you for that. Sometimes it's hard and you have to just continue to focus on the positive and the things that you can affect. There's a lot of things going on every day that I can't do anything about. But I can go out there and try to get people to vote. I can go out there and and advocate for why it's important to have working place policies that benefit women and create a level playing field for people of color. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I can do. Yeah. Well, those are what's amazing is that you've learned to do it at scale in massive ways and bring a lot of people along with you. That's the hope. For people who want to find out more about all these things, your book's available on Amazon, Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. How about uh, When We All Vote? When We All Vote dot org, as you well know, and the United State of Women, we have follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, follow me on both. Uh, we are really trying to get the word out to have as big of a tent as possible. All voices are welcome. All perspectives are important. And uh, our country is only as good as we the people demand that it be. And and having people appreciate the power of their voices is the stage of life where I am right now. Well, I am enormously grateful to have your voice with us today, but also for all the work you've done on all of our behalf so far, Valerie. My honor. Thank you. Thank you. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 